morning. morning. Y'all can have a seat. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Um, Together we're going to affirm some things that we believe about who Jesus is as we get ready to get going. And I think this is so important for us that we remember who we are and what we do as we begin our day. Hey, there it is. Uh, If you'd please affirm along with me. Uh, We believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, who suffered, was crucified, died and was buried, on the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus' church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the eternal life. Amen. Uh, Please join me as we pray for ourselves and for our world. Uh, King Jesus, uh, as we come together today to celebrate who you are and what we've done, we come together to give you glory. We come together to lift up your holy name. We come together to make much of your name and what you've done on our behalf. We come together knowing who we are because of what you've done. Jesus, we just pray for the church around the world. I specifically want to pray for our friends with Vision Nationals working in Nepal today. as they deal with crisis there, uh, an extra measure of grace uh, in that situation. And Lord, that you would even use the tragedies occurring there and around the world um, to save people, that people would know you and love you. Pray for the brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in Africa, those planting churches and sharing the gospel, uh, those whose lives are threatened for proclaiming the truth of who you are, uh, that they would know, Lord, that proclaiming that truth is not in vain, and that you are a mighty God, and you're mighty to to work and to move. We pray for our own country, Lord Jesus. Uh, We ask for um, those getting in the pulpit today around the country that they would proclaim the gospel with faithfulness and courage and boldness. Uh, Pray for our own region. Pray for the Bible-believing churches in Portland and in Seattle. Uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, that, that people would come in the pulpit today and proclaim that You are God, mighty to save, mighty to forgive, the righteous judge who is also just and justifier. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Three Strand, our church network. Um, pray for Oikos and Communion, for Seed, for Damascus Road and Redemption Road and Uh, for Briar Community Church today, Lord Jesus, that you would bless them, that you would help them, and that they would celebrate you well today because of your grace and mercy. We pray for Anchor Church right now, Lord, um, that you would light us up for a passion for who you are, a courage and a strength in the reality of who you are, a conviction of the truth of your word and the testimony about you, about the reality of your gospel, about the forgiveness of sins, about redemption, and about grace, and about mercy, Jesus. God, help us to carry the truth that you save, that you move, that you forgive, you redeem to this city. Jesus, we love you. Pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, okay, today we're going to start 1 John, if you go ahead and go with me there. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 uh, today. 
Now, just a little bit about 1 John and why we're here and why this is important. Uh, so much of 1 John is about reassuring believers that they are in Jesus, that they are in His Gospel, that they are in His truth, and how to operate as people who are in that truth, who are loved by God uh, as they make their way in the world. Uh, that 1 John uh, helps the believer understand what to do in a world that is hostile to the very truth that we believe, and to be reassured and assured in the fact that they are God's that they belong to Jesus. John is well aware of the story and is writing in the context of the story of this reality that God in His grace and mercy created all things and human beings rebelled against God in all His wonder and beauty and righteousness and made themselves enemies with God. They tried to displace God from His right place in the center of the universe. And God, being both gracious and just, removes them from the garden where they find themselves, removes them from the relationship they have with them, but makes a promise to fix the problem that they made, to, to fix the thing that they broke, to deal with their sin against God. And He does so by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners, to forgive sin, to drink the cup of wrath they deserve so they don't have to, uh, to be the one who stands in our place so that we can be made right with God. And John is going to hunker down on this reality that this was from the beginning and that this reality of Jesus who stands in our place for our sins, for our forgiveness, for our redemption so that we can stand right before God not only gives us forgiveness, but gives us life. Life eternal. And that as Christians who know Jesus, who are forgiven for every wrong we've ever done, which are wrong, and yet God being gracious takes our place on the cross for our sins, for our forgiveness, so that we can have life. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only, it is, I always want to be clear on that, it is the forgiveness of sins but it's also life in abundance with God who we've been made right with. And this is the beauty of 1 John. And John wants his church to know this truth, to live in this truth, to embody this truth, that they were once at odds with God and God being rich in mercy forgives them for their sins, takes their place where they deserve as his enemy so that they can be forgiven and made right. So here, let's start in verse 1. Listen to this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Huge. Simple, but huge. Uh, he's using a we that we have seen. He's writing to a church, uh, as, we, as we learn about John. He's writing um, probably in Ephesus and in and around Asia Minor, and we'll get to how he got there. Uh, but he's writing to people who had not actually seen Jesus, who were not eyewitnesses to his death, burial, and resurrection, who had not seen his life, but as an apostle, as a person who was there, as a witness to these things. He says, what we saw. And so he says, 
that which was from the beginning which we have seen. And I think his we means those of us who were there when this thing actually happened. And why do I think that? Well, I'll prove it to you from the text. That which we have heard, that's, that which we have seen with our eyes. Not a vision. You know, God, particularly in the Middle East, the reports of people getting saved by having visions of Jesus in a hard and closed country are numerous and plentiful and awesome. And, and I'm not saying those experiences aren't real, but what he's saying is, with my own two eyes, I saw him the way you see me and I see you right now. That which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon. Now, not to get nitpicky about little words, but we've seen it with our eyes and we've looked upon it. He's trying to be thorough. Uh, and in fact, these words kind of carry a little bit different meaning. And particularly, if we would nerd out about uh, this place in this sentence, this first looked at, or pardon me, the, the scene uh, is what in Greek is called the perfect tense, which means it's a past action with ongoing results. It's not just that they saw Jesus. It's that they saw Jesus, and that has had ongoing results in the rest of their life. That, 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 that coming into contact with God Himself incarnate here on planet Earth has changed the rest of John's life. Uh, and we can say that too as Christians. Meeting Jesus is not just a one-time event where you change your designation on Facebook for your religious affiliation. It is a cataclysmic, life-changing, life-shaping event to meet the risen Christ, to know God Himself through Jesus. And yes, it is a one-time thing that happened in your life in the past, but if you are a Christian, it continues to have results today, every day, and in fact, every second of every day. That which we have looked upon, that which we have touched with our hands. To be honest with you, in, in any language, that's a pretty normal sentence. I'm going to touch the pulpit thingy-majigger with my hands, right? He's not just saying I had a vision or a thought or an idea. I touched him. I touched him. That which was from the beginning which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, this is what, what technically we call the apostolic witness. He's got in his mind other guys. I think um, Eric read from, from Peter's own accounts of what it was to be an apostolic witness. Uh, he's saying, hey, we did this. We saw this thing. Now, this is important for us in 2015, particularly with this work and John himself. Um, John is writing this, probably from Ephesus, to Asia Minor in the mid to late 90s of the first century. So there's no numbers in front of that, um, nor are anyone singing doo-wop from the Hansons in the background. It's the old 90s, where all of my cultural references come from. And so I have to be careful here to just keep going, right? We just keep going straight, straight on, making no Nirvana references just going straight forward. So it happens in the early to mid-1990s, or not 1990s, pardon me, then I did it. <laughs> there it is. It happened in the 90s, okay? Uh, the reason this happened in the 90s, and we think it happened in the mid-90s, is as far as we can tell, uh, John gets pushed out of Jerusalem like the other apostles do. In 66, uh, there is a great war uh, between the Jews and the people of Judea and the Romans, which results uh, in things like the Romans changing the name of 
uh, Judea to Palestine indefinitely. We still use that word today. That happened then. Uh, in 70 AD, they totally destroy the temple. Um, and everyone gets pushed on out. And, and as far as the historical record's concerned, John spends the rest of his life living uh, in and around uh, Ephesus until he gets thrown into a jail. Uh, and then the book of Revelation thing happens, but that's a sermon for a different day. Um, so John, in 66, gets moved on out to Ephesus. Uh, it's likely that he writes John's gospel uh, in the mid-'80s. Uh, and here we are, First John, early, uh, early to mid-'90s. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for a few reasons. Um, there are those who want to say, well, yeah, but nobody writes the Bible until way after Jesus. We just say these things, right? When you're talking to someone in Seattle and say, well, the Bible's just written by people, and it was written way after the fact, and they just said whatever. Try again. Try again. Our earliest copy of John's gospel is in the early first century. John lives an exceptionally long time for a first century cat. He lives an exceptionally long time. He has two big time disciples uh, who become bishops, uh, Polycarp being the main one, but also Ignatius, who's also a very famous dude. But so the thing about John is John lives a long time and Polycarp lives a long time. I think I did the math this morning on the calculator. Polycarp's like 86 when he dies, when he's martyred. He doesn't even die of old age. He's martyred, and they say, come on, you're such an old dude. Come on, just, just say you don't love Jesus, and we'll get over this thing, and we'll just let you go, because you're an old guy, and we don't want to be the guy who throws the old guy to the lions. And he says, try again. No. I love Jesus. No. And they even threaten him. They say, we'll light you on fire. And his response, this is the toughest thing, by the way, if this happens to you ever in life. He says something to the effect, and I'm, I'm remixing it, but he says something to the effect of, well, you can light me on fire for a minute, but the fire of judgment's eternal, so I'll take your minute over God's judgment forever. Bring it on. It's from the Greek. But Polycarp says, bring it. Right? And Polycarp has a disciple named Irenaeus. Now, why is this important? We have their writing. These guys think John wrote this book. They knew John, and they knew that John was with Jesus. It is historically credible and accurate what John is conveying, and John is not just conveying philosophy. He's saying, I saw him, and I touched him, and you need to know him, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. We live in a time and a place where guys like Bart Ehrman, want to say, well, you know, actually, Christianity had uh, all these different versions of Christianity, like a, a, a whole bunch of wonderful lilies and flowers and daisies in a field, uh, and it was these proto-Orthodox, is what he's going to call them, who end up crushing out absolutely everything else and inventing the thing that we believe is Christianity. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this guy gets on the New York bestseller list. Now, the thing that Bart Ehrman doesn't mention when he's on the Today Show or the Daily Show or, or, or whatever when he's talking about these things is that we have on very good evidence that John wrote first John and we have Polycarp talking about it and Irenaeus talking about it. So what it comes down to, and this is what I'll throw out to you, especially if you're not a Christian, listen up. The question is not whether or not the early church believed these things. Because they did. The question is not whether or not John believes 
that he saw a man who was the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of the first 78% of the Bible, who came to forgive sin, to uh, uh, do miracles, to attest to his factual reality, to die on the cross for my sins, for the glory of God, for my forgiveness, for every wrong thing I've done and have to stand before God for. Jesus paid the price for all of those things, rose from the dead, was witnessed, uh, eyewitness Easter, right? Run around teaching and was ascended to heaven. So the question is not whether or not John and Peter and James and these guys think this happened. The question is whether or not they're crazy. The question is whether or not they're wrong. Those are different questions. Those are different questions because a lot of times in Seattle we want to say, well, you know, uh, it's just written by men and it was written by after the fact and I think Jesus is a nice teacher and la yada, 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 yada. Uh, I'm sorry, you just don't get to go there with the Bible. You have to make a decision on whether or not Jesus is the king of the universe or not. You have to make the decision whether Jesus is the judge or not. You have to make the decision whether Jesus is the great forgiver of sins or not. You have to make the decision whether Jesus is who he says he was or not. You don't get to paint him in a corner and take away his power and take away that decision and make up some fictional nonsense that sounds nice and sounds intellectual but simply is not true. You don't get to go there with my Bible. You don't get to go there with the Bible. It's not where we go. We love what's been described as a kind of intellectual squinting or the hermeneutic of suspicion. We interpret things suspiciously. And this is kind of the oxygen we breathe. This is the air we breathe in Seattle. And we, we don't really know much about the history of these things or where it comes from. But, but much of these, these kinds of ideas come out in our thinking, generally speaking. Uh, the big three in the hermeneutics of suspicion are Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx. And together, they're going to say, but how do you really know? And they're going to say things like, well, everything someone says that's religious, the guy standing on the stage is telling you these things for power. They're telling, he's telling you those things to control you. Or, or Freud is going to say, every religious thing that gets said is from your subconscious. It's not real. It's, it's some kind of subconscious process that produces some kind of religious thought. What is our problem with that kind of squinting? It's a sharp needle. That's our problem. So I've got my needle. And I've got your balloon. Everything is subconscious. Pop! Ha! All your religious thought. It's all from your subconscious. Which I don't know if anyone even... You know, people don't even buy Freudian things anymore, right? Or, or, or Nietzsche or Marx is going to say, well, that's all about power. Every religious statement is about controlling people and having power over people. Pop! Now, here's the problem. So is that one. Pop! Every religious statement's about control, then you're trying to control me. Pop! Everything's from the subconscious, Freud. Well, so is that one. Pop! There's a problem. We start throwing rocks. Pop! The statements don't hold up, do they, at some point in time? Well, if every religious statement comes from the subconscious, so does that one. Everything someone says, the religion is the opiate of the people, therefore reject Christianity and follow communism. That's not to control people. That's not to have power over people. That's not to get people to do what you want to do, Marx. Is that what you're telling me? Because last time I checked, you're using that as an argument to get people to do what you want to do and control people to get them to do those things. Huh. That's problematic. 
So we have here John, attested by Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus. Everyone in the early church knew that John wrote this letter. Not only that, he lived to be old. He lived to be old, and he's, he's saying, hey, I saw this. I saw this thing go down, and you need to know that I'm not just delivering to you ideas. I'm delivering to you facts. Now, hey, I'm not saying you're not going to have to make a call on whether those facts are factual or not. But we live in a time and a place where there's sort of an assumption um, where when I stand on a stage and say, Jesus Christ saved sinners from death to life, I can be looked upon and say, well, that's a faith statement, and that's, what, that's just your opinion, right? And then you get a cat like Bart Ehrman or some other guy who got educated at Princeton and studied Greek in these deep and meaningful ways, and he says these lofty things about what is or isn't true about the Bible. And there's an assumption that my opinion's a subjective opinion, and his is objective fact. Well, he's done his research. He's a scientist, basically. He's a Bible scientist, and he knows his stuff, and you're just saying things. Here's the problem with that. No one's objective. No one's objective. Yeah, I don't have an objective opinion about Jesus because I know him personally. And while that has an objective flair and flavor to it, I know him personally. I know God. Yes, I believe the Bible. And yes, I am passionate about that reality. At the same time, someone who's going to the Bible to disprove the reality of God and Jesus has a point. They have a subjective thing they are after. If they're after dismantling the Bible, guess what? They're, they're not approaching it saying, I wonder if Jesus is the Son of God after all. That's not on their mind. That's not on their radar. They're, they're not coming to it as a scientist and doing good science and saying, I wonder if I take this text apart. If maybe, just maybe, Irenaeus is right. And maybe Polycarp is right. And as a pastor, I have to unpack this every year. Someday it will get old enough that PBS will stop running from the Jesus to the Christ every Christmas and Easter, but then they'd have to find some money in the budget to do another thing, and then they'd have to pull out some new guys from Princeton and Cambridge and put them in front of the camera, and they would talk. If you've seen this film, maybe you've argued with your uncle about it at Christmas or whatever. Um, there, there are things being posited in the documentary. It's, well, he was just a teacher, and then some other guys later made him into this whole God thing. Those guys at Harvard, I don't think they're approaching, I'm going to, I'll just say it. I don't think they're going to 1 John and saying, well, maybe Jesus is the Son of God. Well, let's find out. They're approaching it as a document written just by people. John, historically, in history, he's saying, what I've seen, what I've touched, and what I know to be true, concerning the word of life. That sharp, suspicious pin. Pin, P-I-N, not pen. Though you can also use that to pop a balloon, too. I have kids. We've done it. You know, they're going to take that and they're going to say, well, you know, again, it's about power. These early proto-Orthodox dudes like John, they were trying to get something out of the deal. You know what John got out of the deal? 
got an island called Patmos. It's a prison island. That's where he got sent. You know what John's brother, James, got? Read Acts chapter 12, verse 12. He gets executed. He's killed. You know what Pete got? Pete got executed. He got hung upside down on a cross and died. What happened to Paul? Got his head cut off. That's what he got out of the deal. That's what they got out of the deal. That's the power they got out of the deal. They were broke. Paul is saying things to churches that he's working on. I was making tents. I, I was making tents. They're not getting a lot out of the deal. This is not 1400s papal superiority. This is some guys who are destitute and broke because they make it their aim to stand on the rock of our salvation and proclaim forgiveness of sins and rightness with God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to all who will listen. And they will not acquiesce, and they do not give up, and when they say, if you just say He's not God, we'll let you go, and they say, no, I couldn't do that because Jesus is God, period, and they die. What do they get out of the deal? They die. That's what they get out of the deal. The next time somebody wants to uh, uh, import 1400s papal wealth on the early apostles, you just take them to Acts chapter 12, verse 12, and James, John's brother, dying. So we're in 90, early, early to mid 90. John's lost some friends over this deal. lost his brother over this deal. I mean, put yourself in that spot, Anchor Church. This is not an abstraction for John. This is knowing someone that he's sitting next to has died for the gospel, and he pushes on. We're in Seattle, and it's 2015. In America, we have not had to face that. But our brothers and sisters around the world have and are today right now, while we're here in this room with lights and doors and windows, there are preachers who are standing in pulpits around the globe saying, Jesus saves sinners, knowing they've lost friends and they could be next. John knows he can be next, by the way. John's lived through Nero's persecution in 64. John lives long enough to live through other persecutions. That's why he ends up on Patmos. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is likely defending, as we dig into this letter, against two heresies. One of people of a Jewish background who want to make Jesus just a guy, or more of just a guy. Or, and at the same time, kind of former pagan guys who want to elevate Jesus to only God. Uh, sometimes people will call this high and low Christology. Uh, Christology being the study of Jesus. High Christology, he's all God. Low Christology, he's all human. Uh, we want to have a high Christology in that we believe he's God, but we also have that other Christology knowing he's fully human. And so how does he get, go about proving that? Check this out. That which was from the beginning. Go with me to John's Gospel. Uh, some scholars even think John's letter is actually trying to defend John's Gospel as 
the deal. This is what John says in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Does that sound at all familiar to what we just read? Now, it's amazing what John did in the mid-1980s. I did that again. As if John is like hanging out with like hypercolor. I could go on from there. Listen to Tribe Called Quest. Doing Live in the Dream. Run DMC. Yes, yes. Moving on. No more. Go with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, in your English and in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and in the Greek version of John, they did a good job in the ESV because it's the exact same phrase. It's not sort of the same phrase. It's the exact same phrase. You put the two together. They look the same. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to see it. I could put the two up, and you'd be like, oh, look, those are the same symbols. Those are weird letters. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. You'll see in John's Gospel and in John's letters a connection between light and life. That is how God starts creation. It's hearkening us back to the reality that God gives life. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is what John thinks, by the way, shot off the bow, what he thinks about Jesus. Let's start there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. One of my favorite sentences ever. God made everything. Jesus made everything. What didn't Jesus make? Nothing. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. Everything was made with Him. Round and round and round, go. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and I'm sorry if you have the NIV 84. They follow Jerome's Latin translation, and they get this next part wrong. It will say something to the effect of, and the darkness has not understood it, when it should say, a better way to say it would be, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness of sin, the darkness of human iniquity, the darkness of Satan, the darkness of death cannot beat Jesus, period. John could write this gospel and stick it in the mail and say, you're welcome, and then he keeps writing. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John has an agenda. He's saying, John the Baptist came so people would see who Jesus is and people would believe Jesus. He's going to say again and again this gospel. I'm writing this gospel so you, know who, you will know who Jesus is and you will believe him. The, light shi- uh, boop. the true light which gives light to everyone ha- was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Check out the irony. Yet the world did not know him. Still true. 
You and I, as creature, exhibit a world created by the Creator. And yet, apart from Jesus' intervention, we do not acknowledge Him as the Creator of ourselves in all things. There was a man, uh, and the Word became flesh. Oh, man. Talk about it. He could just write this one verse and stick it in the mail. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't have time to nerd out, but every once in a while, you cannot help but do it. And so sometimes it just happens. Uh, the word dwelt is the same word um, that is used in Hebrew to talk about what God does with his people in the Shekinah glory of the tabernacle. Uh, not only that, uh, this word is at times used for the tabernacle. The word became flesh and camped out among us. You could say, though it doesn't mean as much, like if you're just sharing the gospel with someone who's never read the Bible, um, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Again, there's the tabernacle connection. That's what they call. In the Old Covenant, God makes his presence manifest over the Ark of the Covenant that holds the Ten Commandments by this cloud, this pillar of smoke by day and fire by night over the Ten Commandments, over the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, and in the temple. And what he is doing here for his readers who understand that, and now I just told that to you, so now you get to understand that. He is making a connection and saying, that thing that God did here, he did here with Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, manifesting, appearing, incarnating as a man is a bigger deal than a pillar of smoke, by the way. This is one of those moments where we miss it because we don't have the context. But when someone would have read that who knew their, their Septuagint and their Hebrew Bible, they would have oh, what? We're just like, oh, that's nice. God came and lived with us. That's cool. <laughs> and I'm not saying you can't have, by the way, like just now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a nerd out on a nerd out. You don't have to have a seminary degree to get there. All you got to do is read your Old Testament because it's right there. I'm not saying something that's hidden away in some dusty book in my office. It's, it's in this thing, which hopefully isn't a dusty book in your office. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now see, John here is also saying, saw it. This is He whom I said, oh, uh, John, parenthetical statement, comes after me and ranks before me because He is before me. From, uh, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is the Father's side. He has made Him known. You want to know God? Get to know Jesus. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. Back to John. I'm in two Johns right now. Back to 1 John. So he continues. Right? We have to do all that work so you can see that John, an old fisherman, 
in the mid-90s, first century, has some power behind what he says. He speaks in a simple way, but he really, it, he brought it, right? Like it's right there, it comes out. It's been brought in, brought in, brought in. Um, now check this out. The life, have that First John, or John chapter one in your minds. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim or preach to you the eternal life which was with the Father. What? The life was with the Father. The life was with the Father. That is an odd sentence. The life was with the Father. Jesus is the life. Life is through Jesus alone. The life was with the Father. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is, this is the word of life. You, you and I have sinned against God. You and I have rebelled against God. You and I have wiled out against God. You, have, you and I have made idols in our lives. We've put something other than Jesus as is right at the right place of the center of the universe. We've, we've made something more important than him. Myself, personally, I come uh, from a, a Buddhist New Age background. That means I've actually put things, objects of worship in that center. But we all do it, whether it's money or success or job. We put something in God's right place and make that the point of our lives. And when we say to God that this thing is God, we are picking a fight with God because when we say this thing's God, we're saying to God, and you ain't. And you're not God. That's what we do with our lives when we do that. We've loved sin. We've loved idolatry. We loved wiling out. We've loved right things for the wrong reasons. We, we've loved doing good things so that we can feel good about ourselves. We do good things so the world will look upon us and say, You are awesome. And we say, Yes, I am. And when you're doing that, you know what you're saying to God? When you're patting yourself on the back for how awesome you are, you're saying God's not that awesome. Right? Because if you can get up to God, then God's not that holy. He's not that great and he's not that good. If I can do good things to get to God, every world religion says you must do good things to get to God. You must do good things to earn God's favor. I'm telling you that every time someone says that, they're saying God is not that holy. And you're trying to rip him down. Which, by the way, is also picking a fight with God. Don't do that. You don't want to pick a fight with God. He brings life, Satan brings death. In fact, the wages of all our sin are death. We stand before God accountable and must pay the price for our sins. He will weigh it out and we must be reckoned to him. And if Jesus hasn't paid the price for your sins, you will have to. In the book of Revelation, there's this picture. The books are opened up. Everyone stands before the white throne of judgment. The books are opened up. But then it says there, 19, but another book is opened up, whose names within it contain, it, it is the book of life. 
And so all of a sudden, it's not about your right and your wrong before God. It's whether your name's in the book of life. It's whether or not Jesus has paid the price for your sins because no amount of good in the book is going to get you right with God. It must be Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves us. And Jesus is the one that gives us life. Again, He doesn't just pay the price for sins. John is going to hit the two drums again and again. Forgiveness of sins and life. Life eternal. Life in Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Uh, in the Hebrew mind, again, he's, uh, he's working with two massive heresies here probably. You have to say probably because he doesn't call them out specifically, but they're there. This is why he's hitting the life button so much. In the Hebrew mind, God is the author, creator, provider, sustainer of life, period. For Jesus to be the life points to the reality that God is the life and Jesus is God. For those Greeks who are in what, into what's called Middle Platonism, if that comes up on Jeopardy, you win, you share it with me, Middle Platonism. Don't, really, I'm just joking. So Middle Platonism is, is really, in a lot of ways, a lot of what we're dealing with in Seattle. I mean, it's not exactly because they're, I mean, there's stuff the Middle Platonists think that would take the average Seattle New Agey person and go, what? No, that's weird. Um, but the short of it is spirit good, body bad. Spirituality good, earthly stuff bad. And so the idea that God would be man manifest in a body and come to earth kind of freaks them out. They don't like it. So John's being clear to hit these two drums too. His drum kit's getting bigger and bigger in my mind as I go, but that we just have to deal with. Now hear this. That which we have seen, so I thought we again, the apostles, and, or, or eyewitnesses, you could even just say eyewitnesses of the stuff. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is the church. I'm a Christian, I know who Jesus is, I proclaim it to you, you meet Jesus, and we all become the church together, right? Because now we're bound together by Jesus. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is not shot put or javelin. It's not even a sport because there's only so many people on a baseball team, right? And my metaphors, I, I do this, right? I go down the sports line. I know I shouldn't go into sports other than baseball, and yet there I am, and then we're in trouble, and we just have to keep moving. It's not an individual deal. It's a community deal. You become a Christian. You join the church, Jesus' church. And you also join a local body, a church, but you, you get a connection then with the church, the people of God. And that's his aim here. That we have seen and heard proclaimed to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Anchor Church doesn't exist for us to have a community club. Anchor Church exists as the people of God who love the Father through the Son. Jesus has made our church a church. That means our church is about God and His Son, and everything we have together is through God and His Son. That's what makes us different than 
any other wonderful, not a problem, groups. You know, we've got ukulele guys who come in on the second Sunday. What's the difference between the ukulele guys who come in after us in the same room? Right? It isn't, there's no tabernacle in here. There's no Shekinah glory. You're the people of God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we come together, the reason we can call this thing church is because you and I are here. And where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I also. And that he dwells among us. There's something powerful happening when the people of God come together in the name of His Son. That we are the church together. That you and I are the people of God together right now. That's reality. Right now. I mean, how much appreciation does it give us for what God is doing in our midst? Hopefully lots. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you, may, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. Their joy and welcoming people fully into the people of God. Their joy and having other people know who Jesus is. John's joy in having people believe what he's seen and what he's heard, and living and repenting and turning to God in Christ and having life. The Christian life is about life. What kind of life is it? Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's a life of joy in Jesus. If you don't know who he is, we don't want you just to believe the things that John's written, but the things that we believe because we have seen with our eyes God at work. We have heard his voice. We have not had the occasion yet as the people of God to touch him with our hands and see him with our eyes in the way John has yet. But that's a different sermon for a different day. But we know him. We've heard him. We have seen him. We have looked upon him. We believe John. John doesn't really want us to believe John. He wants us to believe the word of life, Jesus. There is one God. God. He has one son. His name is Jesus. There is one way to God, his son Jesus, through his cross, where he died to pay the price for all of our sins and to make us right with God and to give us life. And so we don't become a Christian by cleaning up our life and looking a certain way or talking a certain way. We turn from our sins and we turn to Jesus to be saved and to be forgiven. If you are a Christian, this is it. Live in Christ, in Jesus. You, if you are a Christian, you are in God through Jesus, and He's forgiven you your sins and given you life. And how is that life lived out? Well, lots of ways, but here are two ways. Joy. Enjoying this God who has done so much to save you unto Himself. And live in fellowship and the joy of fellowship and with the church and with God's people, pointing each other to the reality of who He is. 
And all these things, all these things are for His glory. We exist for His glory. We exist to make His name great and not ours. And the more we glorify God, the more we behold His glory and His beauty and His wonder and His goodness and enjoy that as individuals and together as the people of God, the more joy we have. You were built for joy and to enjoy God and all that He has done. To, to taste and see and to savor and to wonder at who He is and His mighty works and what He's done and to live our lives to make His name famous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son. We thank You that this is life that You've given us. You are great and You are merciful. Thank You for preserving John's apostolic wisdom. Thank You that this is a text we have. Thank You for its reliability. Thank You for the chain of events from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus somebody else, to 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 us. I just pray you'd help us to embrace and enjoy and glorify you and live. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen.